So turn with me to Judges chapter 2. We're in the book of Judges, and we just started the series last week. And, you know, sometimes a parent can be really successful, and the kids can be really unsuccessful. We see this play out on a multiple of levels. So I'll put this next guy on the screen, this next uh, picture. Do you guys know who this is? He's pretty famous. Do you know who this is? Michael Douglas. All right, this guy, here's, this is his resume. Listen. He's won four Golden Globes, won a Cecil B. DeMille Award, which I'm not even sure what that is, but it sounds pretty important. He's won two Academy Awards. I know what that is. And he's won one Emmy Award, and that's just the beginning of his resume. Now, I'm not saying he was a great dad, because he probably wasn't, right? These guys that are really wealthy, they tend to um, neglect family a lot of the time. But this is like his business life, okay? This is his business life. Now, this is his son. His son's name is uh, Cameron. Now, doesn't he just look like a loser? Come on, really? No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being mean here. Uh, but here's his resume. Look, here's his resume. Next slide, please. Arrested for drugs three times, sentenced to five years in prison. Once he gets into prison, he's sentenced to four more years because he's doing drugs in prison. How does that happen? I know there's a way, but how does that happen? So that's his resume, and he's currently in the slammer. Here's the next guy, Rod Stewart with the little beauty mole on the side of his face right there and the crazy hair. Here's his uh, resume. He has sold over 100 million records, 31 singles, reached top 10, ranked 17th on all-time list, won a Grammy Award, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Here's his son. Look at that guy. Look on his face. is like, I didn't do it. Right? It's not my fault. All right, here's, here's his resume. On reality show called Sons of Hollywood and Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. That's it. That's all, right? And so when you look at these stories, you can't help but wonder, okay, what happened? What happened here? Like something, something that the parent had, this, this drivenness for success, this desire, this drive, something that they had did not translate to the next generation. Something got lost in the transfer there, right? Something, there was a breakdown somewhere in that translation. And so today we're looking at judges because this is really what happened with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, there was a generation that loved God and served God. Then the next generation comes along and ends up like the guys on the screen that you just saw. They're the generation that sort of lost their faith. It, there was something that was not transferred from the older generation to the younger generation. And so I'll remind you again that uh, the purpose of this book, it's written to show us the consequences of unbelief and disobedience in the nation of Israel. And it also serves as a reminder to us as we try to follow Christ as well. So look at Judges chapter 2, verse 7 with me. Judges 2, verse 7. And it says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So this is actually going back to a previous time before we even looked at last week. There was a generation of Israelites who... Um, came into the promised land with Joshua, and for the most part, 
they lived and, and followed after God. But now they had some compromises along the way. But the Bible is able to say here that for the most part, they, um, they had seen all the great work that God had done, and they remembered it, and they lived from that place. And so the Israelites entered the land with Joshua, and this generation is a generation that knew the past. They remembered what happened to them in the past. So just think of all that that generation had seen. Think of all the things that had happened in the nation of Israel. So uh, name some things for me from the time they left Egypt to the time they got to the promised land. What are some things that happened to them on that journey? Just throw out some ideas. What were some of those things? What's that? Manna. Manna from heaven. So food fell out of heaven for them. All right? That's a pretty powerful experience. What else? Quail. Dead quail just flew and, and just sort of didn't fly because they, they dropped when they died, right? So dead, dead quail. Um, you can quote me on that. Dead quail flew, right? Uh, so dead quail lands in their camp for them to eat. Amazing. What else do they see? What's that? Okay, water from a rock. Doesn't happen every day. What they see when they were coming out of the land of Egypt? What did they see when they were coming out of the land of Egypt? Parting the Red Sea. They also saw a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. This was God's presence with them as they're leaving Egypt. They saw lots and lots of things. And, and you can't help but wonder, how is it possible for the next generation to turn from God after what the previous generation had seen? Right? So the older generation, they had seen all these amazing things that God had done. And you would say that in a way their, their past fueled their present. Their past was, was fuel for their present, their present life. They reflected back on those things, remembered how great and awesome God was, and it fueled their present situation. You know, I can think back when I was, uh, um, when I was younger, I had um, a grandfather that I would sit with sometimes. And see, my parents... My grandfather was a dairy farmer and a really, really hardworking guy, and um, he was a very practical, sort of uh, no-frills kind of guy, and, and I would sit and, and talk with him for, at times, hours, just asking him questions about, you know, you grew up in the Great Depression, like, what was that like? Like, you, you were a young adult when World War II broke out, so what was that like? And he's one of these guys that, um, that he did not get drafted into the war, so he had to go work for the government in like an insane asylum in Connecticut because that's better, right, um, than fighting for your country. And so a tough situation either way you look at it. And so when you think of like what that generation had to go through, um, the way I saw him handle money was that like a dollar, even a quarter, was worth a lot of money to him because his past fueled his present. Like the way he saw money was so different than even the way I saw money because of what he'd been through. I mean, this guy saw the Great Depression firsthand. And to him, he, he knew that money does not, you can't take it for granted. And so his past fueled his present. In the same way the Israelites, this is kind of how they lived. And I would say it this way, that remembering the past changes you in the present. Remembering the past changes you in the present. So if you're ever someone who um, needs to be refueled spiritually, needs to be refueled um, 
in your walk with God, I think that God tells the Israelites and tells us to be a people that practice the spiritual discipline of remembering. That we're a people that reflect back on the past so that we can be fueled in our present and know and remember who God is. And he constantly tells his people to um, remember, remember, remember throughout the Old Testament. You know, one way that I do this occasionally, um, when I was younger, I don't do this as much. I really should do it more, but I don't, I don't do as much as much recently. But um, when I was about your age, um, I, would, uh, I would write down what God's teaching me in a journal. Now, it's not a diary. It's a journal. Girls write diaries. Men write journals, all right? Because that's way more manly, right? So I wrote a journal. And I would date the thing. So here's what happened. I found one yesterday. I was looking back through it, and I was uh, 17 years old when I'm writing this stuff down. And it was just really interesting to look at. I read it for two reasons. Number one, um, just to get back into the mind of a high schooler so I can say, see, you know, I was dumb too. It's okay. And, uh, and then the second reason is to look back and see what God did in my life, and I remember and reflect on those things. And, and what I noticed yesterday, what I saw when I read this, I saw in a 17-year-old version of myself just this person that, um, that had this utter dependence upon God that I feel like at times I lack today. And it's weird because I look back on that and go, you know, I've changed. I've changed a lot. I feel a lot more less dependent on him now than I did back then. And that's not good. And so in a way... Reflecting on the past can change you in the present, reminds you who God is, reminds you where you've come from. Look at Judges chapter uh, 2, verse 10. Skip down a few verses, uh, verse 10. It says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That means they died. They're gathered to their fathers. That means they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So one generation remembers, one generation forgets. One generation knows the Lord, the next generation does not. Now, we have to say this generation that followed after probably knew some historical facts. If you were to quiz them on the facts of what happened, they might be able to tell you, yeah, there were some plagues, there was a um, parting of the Red Sea. They could probably pass the test on the facts, right? In the same way that many of you could probably pass the test on the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection, naming some disciples. You might pass some of those historical fact tests, but facts aren't enough to transform someone. Knowing the facts is not enough to bring life to someone. So what this word means when it says that they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel what it most likely means is that they remember the events, but the events have failed to impact them. You see, they forgot that they used to be slaves. They forgot their nation used to be in bondage in Egypt. And it's the same way, listen, listen, it's the same way that you and I forget that we were once slaves before we came to know Christ. It's the same way in which you and I, 
if, if you, I could pass a test or a quiz on the facts, but the reason why the facts stop impacting you is because you forget who you used to be, or you forget who you would be without Jesus Christ in your life. Because many of you guys grew up in the church, and so you've never had this real sense of like not knowing Christ and being away from him, apart from him. And I think one of the hardest things to impress upon church people like many of you are is the understanding that what would your life look like if you didn't have Christ in your life? Just think about that. What would your life look like today if you did not have Christ in your life? What would your life look like? Because we, we have come from slavery. Not just them, but us. We have come from slavery. Just let that sink in for a minute. You and I have been slaves to sin before Christ became part of our life. And so the nation forgot who they used to be as a nation. And so in the same way, you and I, I think we forget who we used to be as a people. We forget that we used to be slaves. We forget where we came from. Does the Christian faith ever seem boring to you? I mean, raise your hand if you think that it does sometimes. Raise your hand. If you, if you don't raise your hand, you're just lying, right? Does it seem boring to you sometimes? It does, doesn't it? It seems monotonous. And I want to just tell you this very quickly. If, if you feel like right now you're going through just apathy, it's boring, it's just dry, it's a lifeless faith, it lacks vibrancy right now. If you spend some time just praying and reflecting on who you used to be, who you would be without Christ in your life, and that is a slave. And Jesus Christ has set you free from that. When you reflect on that, you will find in your heart an appreciation, a gratitude, a love for Jesus that you didn't have before. And this act of remembering has to be a part of your spiritual life. It has to be a part of your spiritual life. Look with me at Judges chapter 2, uh, verses 11 to 12. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. The Baals are their version of God. They're the many, many gods, idols. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. One point I want you to get from this passage is forgetting who God is and what he has done leads to idolatry. Anytime you and I stop being impacted by the event of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection, you stop being impacted by that, you forget about that, like not forget the facts, but you forget in your heart, you're no longer holding that as, as sacred and holding that as the most valuable thing that could happen in the history of the world. When that moment happens in your life, you start heading down the pathway of idolatry. Forgetting who God is and what he has done always leads to idolatry. Do you, do you notice, like, we, we never stay in neutral. You notice that? Like, we don't just stop worshiping God and just stay in neutral somewhere. We always move towards worshiping 
someone or something else. And we do this because we are, we are wired that way. We are wired to worship. I would say that this is one evidence. If someone says to you, how do you know that there's a God? I would say this. I would say, because we are wired, we are hardwired to worship. Have you noticed that every human being on the face of the earth, for the most part, is seeking after something to hold dear to them and to, and to, be, and to worship? And if it's not a person, it's a thing. Each one of us is looking for something to be ultimate in our lives. And if we find that in Jesus Christ, that's great. But if you don't find it in him, you start looking somewhere else for it. Every single person on the face of the earth is looking for something to worship. And you say, what about atheists? Well, atheists have themselves to worship. Because everything Every person wants to worship something. If it's not something else, it's going to be themselves. I would say it this way, that if you're not worshiping Jesus Christ, then you're indirectly or directly worshiping yourself anyway, right? So everyone is hardwired to worship. Now, if you recall last week, uh, we said that our biggest concern isn't what unbelievers do. We expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers, right? Like, you're not going to hear me get up on the stage. You know, when I, was, um, when I was in high school, the senior pastor at my church, he would often, uh, you know, I grew up close to Washington, D.C., so he would often bring up, like, political issues and cultural issues. Well, I think it's fine to preach on those things done in the right tone and context, but he would just kind of rail on the sins of the culture. You know, the culture's spiraling downward and 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 he would just kind of rant and rage about the culture, and the culture is going to hell, and so on. I'm like, yeah, okay, I get that. But our biggest concern, you're never going to hear me act that way from the stage here, because I expect unbelievers out there in the world, the culture, to act like unbelievers. I'm not going to be surprised by that. That's not going to floor me. It shouldn't floor us. When legislation gets passed, we shouldn't be surprised by those things. I'm not saying we shouldn't care. I'm just saying I'm not going to rant and rage about people that aren't in this room. But what I will tell you that what does grieve me is when the Christians start to embrace and celebrate and accept the sins of the culture as right and good. That's where I get really, really upset and grieved. And it should grieve you, and it should upset you when Christians who say they believe that this book is God's authority to us, and this book should carry weight in our lives, when Christians start to look at the sins of the culture and begin to adopt them and celebrate them and embrace them, those sins, that's when we should kind of rant and rage a little bit about where the Christians are. And this is something that I think the Israelites did. The Israelites began to align themselves with their culture, and they began to align themselves with the Canaanites and began to worship their gods and follow the same path. And I think sometimes what fuels a lot of this uh, cultural, cultural hate that I'll call it, like people that just kind of rant and rage about the culture out there, I think what, what, what's, what, what, what's fueled... What that is fueled by, I think, 
is that we want, listen, we want unbelievers to act Christian more than we want them to become Christians. We want unbelievers to behave more than we want them to be saved. Right? We see their sin as just inconvenient to us as a Christian culture, so we're going to rant about them. And we, we, we prefer more that they just behave themselves. We desire that more than we want them to be saved. I think that's what fuels a lot of that culture hate that we're talking about. And so you're not going to hear me go there, but what I will get passionate about is when the Christians start embracing and celebrating the sins of the culture that we live in. This is what the Israelites did. And in our world, the world that you and I live in, the more sin that we embrace, the more gracious you seem, right? The more sin that you embrace, the more gracious and accepting and loving you seem to be. And so a lot of Christians feel the pressure. A lot of Christians feel like, well, my parents' generation, they're full of hate. They don't like certain people groups. And so I'm going to embrace and accept the sins of that people group so that I can see, they can see me as more gracious and loving than my parents' generation. And I would say that both generations have made mistakes. Both generations have made mistakes. You know, um, I debate if I should talk about this or not. I'm going to go ahead and talk about it. Before I say this, though, I want you to know from this stage, I do not hold the sin of homosexuality any differently than any other kind of sexual sin. I do not. So don't accuse me of that when I make this next statement. Um, a while back, I can say this because this, I'm not going to say names, but this person put this on Facebook, so it's public knowledge to people that he knows. But um, there was a student that went here a long time ago, and, um, and this person's dad recently put on Facebook that his son, who I know very well and used to come here, his son is getting married to another guy. And I first went, whoa. Like, I was taken aback going, wow. And I've talked to this guy many times about this particular struggle he had and, and kind of walked through that with him for a while. But um, obviously at some point he just decided, you know what? I can't really fight against this anymore. I'm just going to jump in with both feet. And so... Obviously, Texas, you can't get legally married here, but they had some kind of a commitment ceremony of some kind between the two of them. And, uh, and what I was more, even more grieved by was the fact that in the comment section of this little thread, there are people from our church like saying, congratulations, that's awesome. Celebrate love wherever you see it. And I'm just grieved, going, man, that is so deceptive. That is so, like, when, when the Christians start embracing and celebrating the sins of the culture and stop calling certain things sinful that God calls sinful, we have done the exact same thing that the Israelites have done. When, when you forget who God is, and what he has done, it always leads to idolatry. Look at verse 16. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, 
for they hoard. Now, you know things are bad when God turns a noun into a verb. Things have gotten really bad for the Israelites. They hoard after other gods and bow down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. So in verse 16, we see uh, God sends leaders. He sends judges throughout their history to speak truth to them. But what do they do? What's their response? They totally ignore the truth tellers of their generation. You know, God does the same thing with you and I. Whenever you and I are about to walk off into sin and idolatry, God sends people into our lives to tell us the truth and to confront us in our sin. And at times we just ignore them, just like the Israelites did. We turn our back on them and say, you know, you're like those, you're like those legalistic people, aren't you? You're one of those kind of people. We put them in that category so we can discount what, everything they have to say. And we don't listen to them in the same way that the Israelites cast aside these judges. Look at verse 19. It says, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Have you ever noticed that each generation tries to out the previous generation? Have you noticed that? It's like a contest. It's like, hey, how, how evil can we be compared to the previous generation? And the same thing's true here. As each generation passed, things got worse and worse and worse. What happens in our culture today is that we take sin and we relabel it progress, right? So let's legalize everything because, you know, that's progress. We should legalize everything because it's just progress. I mean, if you're, what, do you want to live in the past? I mean, back in the past when, when things weren't like they are now? I see this, it, it drives me nuts, but it's, I see this all the time on the news where it seems like they'll say things like, you know, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't think kids really need both parents anymore. I mean, that's old-fashioned thinking. I mean, progress says that, you know, single moms, single dads, that's fine. doesn't affect anybody. And I want to scream at the TV, right? We can't relabel sin and call it progress. This happened in Israel. Next point I want you to know is that false gods make promises they can't deliver. False gods make promises they can't deliver. I'm not saying idols aren't attractive, but I will tell you they make promises that they absolutely cannot deliver on. And you've got to understand something, that idolatry in Israel did not look like you might think. It wasn't like they just said, okay, God, we're not going to worship you anymore. We're going to start worshiping idols. What they did was they started to combine their worship of idols with their worship of God. And when you do it that way, it doesn't feel wrong, does it? The fact that you're still worshiping God makes it feel like, eh, it's not as big of a deal if I'm worshiping this idol and that idol. I mean, me and God, we're still okay. I'm still worshiping him. Him. So it wasn't God replaced by idols. It was God plus. God plus the idols. And I think this is the biggest trap that you and I can fall into when it comes to Satan and his temptation, is that Satan can, and even your own flesh, can, can sort of trick you into thinking that 
you know, me compromising in this situation is okay because I'm still worshiping God. I'm still a follower of Jesus. And so you mix in a little bit of idolatry, and that is the ultimate lie because you still feel like you and God are good. I haven't totally turned my back on him. Tim Keller says it this way, the greatest danger isn't atheism, but that we ask God to coexist with our idols. The biggest temptation for many of you is not going to be just outright atheism, total rejection of God. The biggest struggle is going to be mixing your worship of God in with idolatry and compromising. There's two questions that Keller puts in his book on Judges. How do we know if something is an idol? He asks two questions. Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area? This applies to sexuality, pornography, dating. Am I willing to let God have authority in my life over all areas of my life? If not, it's an area of idolatry. The second question is this. Am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area? These are things like, you know, good things in our lives can be an idol. Like for me, it could easily be my family. My family is a great blessing from God to me. But am I willing to accept whatever God sends into my life as it relates to my family? If not, it's an idol to me. Skip down to uh, Judges chapter 3. Look at verses 5 to 6. Judges 3, 5 to 6. It says, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I love these names. And their daughters, they took them to themselves for wives. And their own daughters, they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. I want to say just one thing very quickly about this passage. Did you notice that? Don't gloss over Scripture. Look at that. It says, they began to intermarry with their sons and daughters. And what does it say? What's the last phrase? What does it say? And they served their gods. You see that? I want you to catch this. Listen. If you're someone who is in a relationship with someone, dating relationship, and you say you're a believer, and they're not a believer, that's sinful. Because what's going to happen is, at some point, you're going to begin to worship their gods in the same way the Israelites did with their people. And if you don't believe me on this, I've seen it happen countless times where someone says, well, they're, you know, they're, they say they're a Christian. I'm, they, they pass the test. But if you don't sense a real strong vibrancy to that person's faith, and you're just okay with them saying like, okay, uh, let me just ask you one question before we continue in our dating relationship. Are you a Christian? And they're like, yeah, yeah, of course. This is Texas. Everyone's a Christian, right? Right? Like, okay, good, good. Okay, we can still get married. I mean, if it has to look like that, then that is a problem. That's a major problem. And so what's going to happen is this. If, if you date someone that's not a believer, you are more likely to marry someone who is not a believer. It's just funny how that works out, right? And, uh, 
And if you marry someone who's not a believer, you will either do one of two things. Begin, <clears throat> begin to worship their idols or just live in conflict and misery for the rest of your life. Or if God shows enough, enough grace and saves them, which can happen but should not be the reason why you marry someone in that situation, God can work in spite of our sin. But if those are really your two options, that's what will happen to you. And I've seen it countless times. And so some of you may need to end a relationship as a result of hearing this message today. You might say, yeah, that's me. I mean, Second Corinthians chapter 6, uh, 14, Paul says that Christians should not be yoked together with unbelievers. And this includes a dating relationship. It includes lots of different kinds of relationships. It definitely includes dating relationship. So I want to ask a really big question as we close out today. The really big question is, why didn't this generation's faith get passed on to the next generation? One generation knew the Lord. Other generation did not know the Lord. One generation remembered what God had done. The other did not know what God had done. So the question is, why did that generation fail to pass on their faith? And I would say it's, it's possibly for the same reasons that it doesn't happen today. Now think about this question in today's context. There are many reports that say the younger generation is leaving the church in mass droves. The younger generation is checking out of church and the faith. And if we, if we asked each generation, why is this happening? I would say the older generation might say, well, it's the younger generation's fault. They're just hardened of heart. And you guys might say, well, they were hypocrites. And you might get this blame game going back between the two generations. But I would say it's probably a little bit of both of that. But since I'm talking to you this morning, I'm going to address your side of the equation as the kids. Listen, your faith is most likely going to be a reaction to your parents' faith, for good or for bad. Let me explain this. I think there are three types of parents that most of you probably have in the room. So the first kind of parent is strong believers. Your parents love Jesus. They live for Jesus. They admit their faults to you. They repent. They confess their sin to Jesus. And the temptation that many of you are going to have, if these are your parents, is your temptation is going to be, you're in danger of taking it all for granted and becoming apathetic and bored in your faith. You're just going to assume that it's just going to happen, like we saw the guys at the beginning. That, yeah, if I just, you know, go out and party a little bit, you know, it's, my, my money's going to come to me, right? What those guys thought. And you're going to be tempted to think that, see your parents' faith and think it's just going to happen just because you're a, you know, fill in the blank of your last name. That you're going to inherit your faith in the same way that you might inherit their money. You know, when I was a kid, I was, you know, I had a dad. I love my parents to death, love my dad, but he, he didn't really show me what it meant to be a godly man. He was a very quiet, timid Christian, and uh, I had to learn it elsewhere, other men in my life. And so I was jealous of my friends' dads that had that, and my friends would be, like, complaining about, yeah, my dad said we got to do our family devotional. And I'm sitting there going, dude, I would kill 
I wouldn't really kill literally, but I would be really excited if somebody, if my dad would do that for our family. I would love that. He's never done that in my entire life. I would love that. Like you have no idea what you what you have in your father. And so I was, I was not this kid, but I was, um, I wasn't in that category, but I was jealous. I mean, if you've got that, be thankful, be, grace, be, be grateful for that. The second category is unbelievers. And this is a very difficult one to talk about because I know many of you come from various background circumstances. And I want to say it this way. If your parents are not believers at all and they're running from God, they have no desire to be a follower of Christ, they make fun of you because of the fact that you follow Christ, if that's where you are today, I just really want to say that I'm glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you want to chase after him and follow Christ. That's awesome. But I also want to give you some warning today that you might be running to your faith as a way to run away from your parents, but if that's the only thing that's driving your faith, it's not going to last. If the only thing driving you to Jesus is the fact that I just want to do the opposite of what they do, my parents, it's not going to be enough for it to last through the storms of life if this is where you find yourself. And some of you guys have some really difficult situations. I know you do. We had a guy um, who spoke to us at the men's conference two weekends ago named Bobby Pruitt. This guy has been a pastor for over 30 years in his 50s now. If you see the guy on the outside, you think, that guy must have grown up in a strong Christian home. That is not his story. His story is he was the youngest of 13 children. His story is that both of his parents were alcoholics. His story is that every single sibling in his family is currently an alcoholic. He's the only one in his family who decided to say, you know what, that's not going to be my life. I'm going to follow Jesus and help others to come follow him as well. He made that decision to follow Christ. He said that his dad would routinely wake him up for school by pouring beer on his head. Good morning. So some of you guys have some really difficult situations that you're in. I'm also going to give you another warning as well that some of you will get out of here in high school and you're going to think to yourself, man, you'll be tempted to reject your faith because of the kind of parents that you had. And you'll ask questions like, how can God let this happen? Why couldn't he give me better parents? Here's what I'll tell you. Do you know why your parents are like that? Because they rejected Jesus. Don't make that same mistake. Don't make that same mistake. And the last kind of person I want to talk about is those that have hypocritical believers. And I would say, put believers in quotations because I don't know if they are or they aren't. But they're hypocritical believers. These parents go to church, they carry their Bibles, they smile, they talk a nice game. But at home, everyone knows in the family that things are just hell. Things are awful. Dad treats mom horribly. Mom treats dad horribly. Always yelling at the kids. You know, I had a friend when I was in high school named Ben Jackson. And his dad was a deacon in our church. And a real nice guy, put together, 
always dressed nice, just really nice guy, friendly. Until one night, Ben told us the truth about his dad. He said his dad used to yell and scream at his mom and beat his mom, abuse her. He's a deacon at my church. And so ever since high school, Ben's life has been a train wreck, even to this day. Even to this day. Because I imagine at some point he decided, you know, I'm not sure I can believe all this stuff. Based on how my dad acted, his dad was a hypocrite. And I want to remind you this morning, if you fall into this category, listen, don't let the sins of your parents be an excuse for your sin. Listen, because it makes no sense to reject Jesus because of your parents' hypocrisy. Because the same hypocrisy that you hate, Jesus hates it too. He says so in the Gospels. Jesus agrees with you. So the best thing you can do is to follow after him. To follow him. Listen, we are way late right now, so I'm going to let you guys go to breakouts. But um, here's what we'll do. You guys can head to breakouts. The discussion sheets are on the ping pong table over there for the leaders. Head to your breakout room. And uh, thanks for your attention, guys.